everybody, Cora here. Welcome back to Rev on Air, the Rev on Vert podcast, a place for sustainable storytelling with founders, activists, creatives, and phenomenal individuals who are paving the way for a more conscious green future for us all. Today, I'm extremely honored to be speaking to the incredible Damien Mander, founder and CEO of the International Anti-Poaching Foundation. Damien has worked tirelessly to help preserve endangered animals, working with local African conservationists to help train them to protect our last remaining species of African wildlife. I tracked him down on one of his rare times not in training to speak to us about conservation and our relationship to the natural world as he has seen it very much hands-on on the ground. Damien is an Iraq war veteran who served as a naval clearance diver and special operations sniper for the Australian Defence Force. In 2009, however, whilst traveling through Africa, he was inspired by the work of rangers and the plight of the wildlife he saw there. Liquidating all of his life savings, the International Anti-Poaching Foundation was established to be the last line of defense for nature. Over the past decade, the AIPF has scaled to train and support rangers, which now help protect over 20 million acres of African wilderness. In 2017, Damien also founded Akashinga, which means Nature Protected by Women, an IAPF program that has already grown to over 240 employees with seven nature reserves in the portfolio. They're the only group of nature reserves in the world to be protected by women. Their goal is to employ a thousand women by 2025, protecting a network of 20 nature reserves. Damien is the winner of the 2019 Winsome Constance Kindness Gold Medal, a prestigious international recognition for services to animals and humanity. Past recipients include Sir David Attenborough and Dr. Jane Goodall, so he's in very good company. He was featured in the newly released documentary The Game Changers from six-time Oscar-winning director James Cameron and has now released another documentary with James and National Geographic about his work with the women of Akashinga called The Brave Ones. I cannot recommend you guys watching that one enough. As you can imagine, I was quite excited to get to speak to someone with such an incredible resume of doing good in the world. Today, Damien and I will discuss our relationship to the natural world, the importance of protecting endangered species, how we can all help animals simply by switching to a more plant-based diet, and also the importance of supporting females in conservation. I really can't wait to share this conversation with you all. It, it deeply impacted me and I hope it will you too. So now, over to Damien. Hey, Damien. Thank you so much um, for coming on. I'm just, I'm really, really excited to speak to you. I, I learned about you first um, watching The Game Changers and um, your, your work with anti-poaching efforts and also veganism. It really, out of the entire movie, it spoke to my husband and I as, as one of the most memorable moments. And I've kind of really been watching what you've been doing ever since and thought it was the perfect time to to bring you on and and talk about conservation and our diets and um protecting the natural world because i think there is a moment in time for this to really happen right now and cool yeah so so to kick things off i just i kind of wanted to start with a question i ask everybody which is just to, to tell us a little bit about your younger years i feel I feel like so much of our childhoods can kind of lead into who who we grow up to be, whether, you know, the good, the bad, all of these things. And I just wanted to ask a little bit about your evolution into, you know, joining the army and and your role there and how, you know, in, in sort of a nutshell, how your 
your younger years brought you to where you are today? Yeah, well, first, uh, thanks very much for having me and, and well done on tracking me down. Uh, I spent a lot of time in remote places recently, so I know I can not always be that easy to get a hold of. Uh, bravo. Um, yeah, so my childhood, uh, so I, I mean, I grew up on the east coast of Australia, sort of middle class. Uh, you know, all, I mean, most Australians grew up close to the coastline. Um, you know, at a young age, I just got involved with just snorkeling and, and uh and then, um, you know, fell in love with the ocean. Uh, you know, and I, you know, from the time I could walk, I was, uh, you know, splashing around in the surf and, and that. And then, uh, I think I was about thirteen, eh? and we used to go and um, we used to go and steal these fishing lures from the local fishing shop, and we go down to the local jetty and we'd sell them to the fishermen. Um, you know, the fishermen would lose them, and then I thought, well, it might be easier if and probably less risk to go and uh, get a mask and snorkel and a set of fins and start diving down and collecting these things uh, rather than um, rather than stealing them from the from the fishing shop each time. Uh, so yeah, started doing that and you know built up a little empire. Uh, you know these things with the 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 lures used for calamari fishing, and uh, you know, the fishermen would fish all night. I'd get down there before school in the morning, usually freezing cold waters, and um, Sorry, we've got a helicopter taking off in the background there. I hope that's not interfering. Um, yeah. And then, uh, you know, we got a bunch of shopping trolleys and threw them in the water and wrapped them up with, with ropes that we'd, you know, stolen off. Uh, you know, this, this sounds like a lot of theft going on here. Um, that was, <laughs> were taken off, off some of the local ships. And then, of course, the fishermen would be losing more lures and, and I'd always be in the water there ready to ready to uh, get those lures and sell them back and then use that to buy scuba diving equipment and, and basically just, you know, spent most of my teen years. I spent more, more time in the water than out of it. And then I suppose for, for any, any kid that's grown up diving, the ultimate job as a diver is to be a Navy diver. And uh, so um joined joined the military as a as a well initially electronics technician and transferred across to become a, a navy diver at the age of uh 20 uh when was that it's about 2000 hey so that was the beginning of my military career and yeah it's, you know to be you know you know we, we're a product of our past and be able to look back at where where we came from and for me you know i would say definitely you know a lot of the good things that have happened to me uh, in my life have come from the ocean do you think that that was, because I always find it really interesting, you know, how, how people change over time and people don't change over time. And, and do you think, I mean, I've been listening to you in a few other talks and conversations and, and you talk a lot about the fact that you, you were somebody that hunted, you fished, you definitely engaged with animals in that way. Like, do you think though, there was ever born a sense at that time of a connection to nature that like spoke to you throughout your life? Or was that something that really didn't come about till much later? I mean, I always felt at home under the water. Uh, and, but I, I, you know, to me, it was, it was about being in another world, not necessarily about uh, the conservation sense or, or, or the, the nature sense. Uh, you know, it was just it was you know, being suspended in this in, the, in this different world, uh, and so. Sorry, I've just got a little visitor here. Hello, Murphy. My son, dog, right? dog, dog, dogs come to visit. Speaking of the natural around. world and our connection. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, look, I, I mean, we grew up with uh, with a dog, not Murphy, 
uh, when when I was a kid, you know. But other than that, really didn't really have a connection to animals or to nature or or even that mentorship. Uh, and you know, it was, I'm, not, I'm not saying anything negative against my parents or the people I was I was around. It just wasn't it wasn't the upbringing that I that I had. And uh, you know, sometimes sometimes it's just a lack of having access to that or or you know that just even just one person in your life um that that means that you just don't grow up in you know with that that sort of mindset and i think that's something you know very special about the world we live in today is that you know we we everybody knows about climate change everybody knows about you know having to make changes in our life uh because of the way the world is going and and uh you know, we, I mean, we can't continue on the trajectory that we're on uh, and expect uh, for us to be around as a species for, for forever. You know, we, we do have to make changes. So, you know, that in that in that respect, it's um, you know things have changed a lot since since I was growing up. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, yeah. Sorry, carry on. No, no, no. It just because I think what what's interesting about that is that it just can mean that you don't necessarily have to harbor like these huge connections to nature. You don't have to grow up in a certain household in order to become an environmentalist or a protector of nature down the line. You know, it's, it's not like we can't change when we get into our later years. Yeah. You know, and, and you know, look, I mean, nature's, nature's had billions of years to evolve. Uh, evolution is the cutting away the parts that, that don't work and keeping the bits that do. And, and, and we as humans, we don't have billions of years. We've got a handful of decades at best. And, you know, we don't have to get it all right on day one, but, but you know, the way I look at my life is you know, continual improvement. And, uh, you know, definitely part of that has been, uh, you know, my evolution into conservation, uh, you know, using the skills that I got from the military, uh, transition to plant-based or veganism. Uh, but even, you know, it, it, as I go forward, you know, there's still, there's still things in my life that I know that I can improve on. And, and I suppose that's... Uh, that's what life is about, continually improving. And it's interesting because, I mean, I, I want to just touch upon this really quickly. I mean, you had a very prolific military, um, you know, time in the military. You were there for, for many years. And I don't think that necessarily people would group learnings from the military or experiences in the military to where you've ended up today animal conservation, veganism, etc. But it seems to me that there must have been something that you harbored within this time, you know, of being in places that were war-torn or you're going through these really, really heavy emotional experiences. You know, did something, was something born in you at that time, do you think, that led to you going to Africa and dedicating your life to something that's so kind of, impactful and meaningful and and in a way there's obviously elements of violence to what what you and the anti-poaching foundation are doing but mostly i would think it's it's based on on gentleness and empathy and a desire to protect i think it was more of more of being broken down as opposed to being having something born uh, you know and i grew up you know later teens in a, in a way that it, you know i find it hard to understand and and that's probably what frustrates me the most about the way I was is because I don't understand why I was that way. Uh, and if I did understand a little bit more, I could speak to the kid that I used to be in, in others. Uh, but, you know, like a hothead and, you know, a lot of ego and, uh, you know, I, I'd, I'd say fairly selfish, you know, having joined the military for adventure, not to serve my country. Uh, Iraq was about, uh, 
about making money. You know, I went there as a private contractor and, you know, I did very well financially. And again, that was a selfish, um, a selfish choice. Uh, and then, you know, coming to Africa was about looking for a, for a fight, not, not necessarily a cause. Uh, and, you know, but there's, 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 you know, that, that journey, particularly Iraq as a way of, of breaking down those, those layers of, of machoism and ego and, and giving you a different lens through which to, to see the world. And I suppose just in general time and experience in life, regardless of, of what career we're doing, um, you know, we all, we all, we all, uh, we all gather that, that experience over time. And, you know, we choose to, to try and learn from our experiences and become a better person or we don't. And, um, you know, it, it was a, a, a you know, some just some some random barroom chat that I'd heard uh, years before coming to Africa about anti-poaching, and it just sounded like the next romantic adventure. And after after serving uh, as as a navy diver, and then you know with special operations, uh, you know a sniper platoon, and then in Iraq, and you know, spending three years in Iraq, you know, there's sort of there's there's not too many things you can do to get the next cool set of pictures on on your social media accounts after doing all that stuff and, and anti-poaching seemed like that, you know, like the next opportunity for me. And it really was only going to be a six month, a six month thing, just come over and, you know, and, you know, what's Damien Amanda doing next and sort of a bit of a show off type thing. And then uh, it was a combination of two things. You know, the first one was seeing what, what, what rangers were doing, uh, wildlife rangers, people that had given up everything in their life. Uh, to be away from their family for up to 11 months of the year out fighting for the heart and lungs of the planet. And I, I just come from working within a $600 billion a year annual defense budget, uh, uh, having any tools I wanted, uh, trying to get us home safely each day. And we were fighting for, for resources in the ground, uh, you know, and, and the arguments of old men. And, um, and then seeing these rangers that had, that had just so little, uh, very little training, very little leadership and, lacking just even the, the most basic uh, of essential items like boots in, in many cases. So it's, a, you know, that made me really think, um, you know, particularly the fact that I was there trying to have an adventure on the back of their hard work and their, their lifetime dedication uh, guys that were making uh, a couple, you know, 250 bucks a month. And I'd just been making 250,000 US a year uh, as a mercenary in, in, in the middle East. Uh, yeah. That, that, yeah. Uh, and I suppose you know one thing about myself um, that I that I uh, you know a personal quality that I that I'm proud of is just being able to call bullshit on myself uh, and just say you know all right you know this is this is not right um, you know what can you do about it uh, and then alongside seeing what rangers were were um, were fighting for uh, you know this is seeing what was happening to animals and wildlife and. And knowing that I had a, a, a personal set of skills that, that you know, didn't have a lot of relevance uh, in, in, in the real world, you know, other than the management, the leadership, leadership stuff that we'd learned, uh, you know, all the, the combat uh, and that, you know, unless I was going to go into another theatre uh, of warfare, you know, what, how could I transfer those skills to these rangers to help protect animals that were being hunted in a way that I used to hunt animals? Uh, you know, I grew up hunting, and uh, uh, but I never hunted after Iraq. I knew what it was like to be hunted as a, as a human, and then you know, but that's a different fight. You know, the bullets go both ways, 
animals just trying to do what animals do, be animals, and, and they want the same thing as us. They want, they want shelter. They want to build family structures. Uh, they want to live with, with, without fear. They want to live in safety. Um, and, and we as a species, we continually take that away from them. And, you know, I saw, you know, in particular with elephant and rhino, uh, animals that were being hunted with the most aggressive tactics because of the value of their their horns and uh, and their, their tusks. Uh, you know, I saw an opportunity to try and do something different, um, other than than run around town looking for the next set of pictures for my social media. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a phenomenal a phenomenal story, Damien, as I'm sure many many people have told you, and. You know, I think I was listening to I was listening to the TED talk you gave in Sydney um, over the weekend, and I I heard you you kind of started off by talking about this moment where you had discovered a an animal that had been killed, and you know, or was kind of in the process of being killed and giving birth, and 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 that it was just this moment for you of of just clarity that these animals are so innocent that we're doing the most atrocious things to them. I mean, mm. a lot of people go to Africa on safari. They see these beautiful animals. They feel a connection to them, but then they come back to London or New York or Sydney. And, you know, they might read an article about poaching and feel slightly more connected to it because they've been there and they've seen one in the wild. But, but how do you begin to get across to people what it's like to just to be there and see an animal killed in a way that is so unnecessary, so violent, and what that does to you as a, as a human being, because, it, because I can't even imagine what that would feel like having to witness it firsthand. It's what I would assume it would be like having to go into a factory farm and watch animals be slaughtered in the most inhumane yeah. way. Like, but you've actually seen it. You've actually been there. You've actually felt it. So for those of us who can't be there, see it, feel it, I mean, mm. how, how do you describe it? Well, I mean, anyone listening to this right now can just turn around and look, look around them and look at the four walls that they're surrounded by. And, uh, and that is a product of our treatment of nature. Uh, you know, at, at a time when civilization has been brought to its knees by a small scaly anteater uh, called a pangolin, uh, you know, this, this, this planet's been spinning in space for well over 5.3 billion years and survived a lot worse than human beings and, and will continue to do so. And, uh, and we like to think that we sit at the top of the food chain. You know, we, we're, we're a small part of a big system. Uh, we're not the main act. We're not the main act. And, and the more that we think we are, uh, the more that we are the endangered species. Uh, pandemics will continue. Uh, the more that we, the more pressure we continue to put on nature. So, uh, as people uh, feel caged at home, uh, you know what better time in history to, to highlight the the fact that we can't just keep, uh, keep treating our nature like a toilet, uh, like this endless resource. Uh, and it's it's you know that's 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 one end of the spectrum, and uh, you know as you ask the the other end of the spectrum is is uh, is the capacity to suffer, and you know we we all we'll share this there's one thing we'll share in common regardless of intellect regardless of species uh regardless of race sex uh, religious orientation uh whether we have fur whether we have horns whether we have tusks we all share one thing in common and that is the capacity to suffer 
and uh, the only difference uh, in the capacity to suffer uh, between species is the difference we create in our own minds. And uh, you know, when a when a when an elephant is slaughtered uh, by a poacher for its tusks uh, on the plains here in Africa, uh, it's no different to a, a cow receiving a bullet to its head in a factory farm uh, somewhere in the U.S. or a, uh, you know, a geese being force-fed foie gras before of force-fed grain before being, you know, having its head chopped off for foie gras somewhere in France. It's, it's all the same. Uh, it's no different to a, uh, someone dying slowly of, of, uh, of a disease in, in hospital in, uh, in the UK. Uh, suffering is suffering and, and, and murder is murder. And the more helpless the victim, the more horrific the crime. And, uh, you know, I, ultimately I got involved with conservation to try and stop uh, the suffering and, and uh, accelerated uh, acceleration towards extinction of, of elephants and rhinos because that's what my niche skill set uh, allowed me to, to slot into. That became my dance space, if you will. Uh, but then, uh, you know, the transition to, to veganism, to plant-based, you know, based on the fact that, I, you know, I'm walking around the bush all day protecting one group of animals, coming home and, and putting another group of animals on the fire and, and the hypocrisy of that, uh, to me, is not something I wanted to live with. And, you know, we, people can sit there and come up with all the excuses in the world. And, you know, half of them I made up, you know, as a master of bullshit to try and uh, create things to suit my own conveniences. And eventually the truth is accumulative and, and it weighs too heavy on your shoulders. And, uh, uh, you know, that wasn't the life I wanted to lead. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to walk the talk. Uh, and then, you know, you go beyond that and realize it's not just about elephants and rhinos and, 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 and not eating meat, but looking after large, wide open ecosystems because it's this rich tapestry of biodiversity upon which our future as a civilization is dependent. And if, if, if we look after these, these wide open spaces, every animal, every tree, uh, every insect, uh, a reptile, fish, whatever it may be, uh, every living thing is protected. And that is, that is essentially what we need to be doing uh, as a species. Uh, if anyone's read E.O. Wilson's book, Half Earth, uh, Wilson is probably the, the foremost biologist since Darwin. Uh, he won the Pulitzer for, for his, his book, Half Earth. But in that book, he says, for us to stop our acceleration into the sixth mass great extinction, which for the first time uh, in the history of, 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 of the world is a man-made phenomenon. Uh, for us to stop that, we, we need to set aside 50% of the planet for nature. Uh, and we currently have 17% set aside. So we've got some work to do, hey? Yeah. Well, I mean... This is why conversations like this are so important. And I really want to get into, I really want to get into the more like the ideas around plant-based eating and, and all of that towards the end. But for now, I want to just ask you, you know, for those of us who might not be so aware, you know, when you kind of moved to, to Africa in 2009 and, and, you know, now it's 2021, what, what was the deal with poaching? You know, it's like, I think, um, I think that sometimes we think about it, we don't quite realize how big of a deal it is. I don't think we quite realize how pervasive it is, you know, because I think a lot of people here in the UK, you know, we wouldn't go out necessarily and kill an elephant and want its tusk, but that doesn't mean that other people around the world don't. And I, I specifically, you know, it's so funny when I was coming up with the sort of questions I wanted to ask you, it was, it brought me back to, um, 
a class that I did when I was getting my master's degree in sustainable development about ecotourism. It was specifically dedicated to ecotourism. And, and I remember the professor giving this story about something that will never leave me, which is that a lot of people from the Middle East love to do trophy hunting because, you know, because of, we don't even really know why. And he was like, I, I can't actually quite figure out the mentality because these aren't people that are even shooting something with a, like a quite a, you know, small gun and, and there's like a hunting element. I mean, like an elephant is huge. It's slow moving. We're seeing some people out with like AK-47s. Like why the hell would you take a machine gun to a huge slow moving animal? But like there have been instances of this. And I think I've spent so many years within sustainability trying to wrap my head around other people's desires and what drives them. And I think when it comes to animal cruelty, it's something that I still don't quite understand. And I wonder if by working in this for so many years now, you've started to kind of under, and as somebody who's to hunt yourself, you know, not saying that you ever took an AK-47 to an elephant, but you know, have you ever been able to understand where these people or this desire comes from so we can start to unpack it and like dismantle it? Yeah, I mean, for, for me, it was, uh, you know, as, as a youngster, it was, um, it was a desperate act for, for some form of primal respect. Uh, and I suppose it was my own weaknesses and insecurities that made me take aim at the vulnerable to try and sort of prove my manlihood. Uh, you know, and I, I see that in a lot of, a lot of people that uh, you've got to separate hunting from poaching. Um, poaching is, is, you know, the commercial taking of a... Of a um, uh, a natural resource. Uh, well, that's the commercial side of it. It is the, then the um, the um, you know the side where people are poaching for food and that. Uh, but but to, to take it back to hunting and, and the trophy hunting and the, you know you're talking about the people that get on get on a plane and fly over and, and want to shoot these animals. Yeah, I mean I can speak to that because uh, not necessarily from the trophy side. But yeah, you know when I used to go deer hunting and uh, you know and it was it was. You know, you know, I didn't even do it for food. We're doing it for what we we thought was fun, and uh, yeah, that's it's a weird one, hey. Uh, we can be weird creatures, and um, but it was it was it was desperation, really desperation for respect, um, and uh, probably fear of of going out and confronting um, my own um, inadequacies in in other ways that. Uh, would be much more, uh, I suppose, beneficial to society than, than taking aim at something that can't fight back. Yeah, and, and I think that's a really good point and a really good idea of, you know, definition and actually just thinking, you know, I, I mentioned I'm from Maine and, and we have a huge, we have a huge amount of people that hunt deer for, for food or, you know, bear, like this, this really gets me. I, I have a couple of friends who, who hunt bear um, and, and they always justify it in that they eat every part of the animal, um, you know, bear stew, like, you know, they'll, they'll use everything. And then they also justify it in that, you know, we have huge tick problems coming up into Maine with global warming yeah. and we get all these deers, but you have to kill the deer because voila, like they're going to be a big problem and they're endangering us by yeah. being vessels for ticks. What would you say, yeah. just out of curiosity, like what would you say to those arguments in terms of our treatment of animals in that way and hunting in that context? 
Yeah, it's, I mean, we live in, living on a planet now with 8 billion people. Uh, you know, we're smart enough to desex or nude our cats and dogs because we understand that when there's too many of them, there's too many of them. But uh, we struggle with the ethics of uh, talking about uh, maintaining healthy human populations on the planet. Uh, and then, you know, we have the same problem with, with kangaroos in Australia. Well, the problem isn't with the kangaroos. The problem is 95% of our population lives within 50 kilometres of the coastline. Uh, so we keep cutting down forests and cutting down cutting down bush uh, and what we term development uh, so we can put up uh, new housing estates. And then uh, when the kangaroos have got nowhere to go and they start eating people's gardens or eating people's crops, we term that as a problem, we term them as a pest. And we have to go and cull them. And uh, so I think, you know, there's a much deeper conversation that, that, that you know, I think we, we all know about. And that is, uh, you know, what is a healthy human population on this planet and how do you go about... Uh, you know, family planning measures on on a scale that's going to be able to keep uh, keep a balance between nature and and humanity. And uh, you know, as I said before, we're not, we're not the main act. Uh, and so, of course, if we keep building towns and cities and isolating uh, traditional uh, migration corridors for animals, of course, those animals are going to you know, increase in population because they've got nowhere to go, yeah. nowhere to move. Uh, uh, they they run out of food. They go looking for food. Uh, one thing I will say to the people that are that are eating uh, eating, eating some of that stuff on the front of the wild, you need to check out uh, you check out some of the the viruses and that that these animals are carrying, hey? because there's some funky stuff getting around, yeah. and um, we don't always <laughs> we don't always think about that. Yeah, well, I'm excited to share this with one person in particular who actually did the exact same thing as you. He was um, he was in private security in Iraq for two years after he was in the military and. And now he goes home and hunts and I'm going to send this to him. Um, so thank you. And now, and I agree 100% with the yeah. of the population. And it's, it's something that within sustainability feels very hard to touch, telling people to consider having less children. And I think especially in the West, the way that we live our lives, like it's something to consider and, and thank you for mentioning it. Um, but then going back into poaching, what is, I mean, sorry to be this frank, but like, what is the deal there? I mean, it, it seems kind of inconceivable. My husband and I were talking about this morning, like he was like, so do people still genuinely believe in 2021 that, you know, a tusk is a great decoration or that rhinoceros horn has medicinal purposes? I mean, there is so much science, there is so much tech, there is so much access to information. How, how are how is poaching still really a thing is is kind of what i wanted to ask you in like the most basic sense because it can seem slightly inconceivable looking at it objectively as to why this is still something that is so desirable and something that's even happening yeah for, uh, okay for sure for, i just want to touch back on your on your friend there uh your private security mate uh ex-military um and, and you know i still you know have, have a lot of banter with the with the lads, uh, you know, they, they, they give me a bit of shit, you know, you, know, you, you don't eat meat and all that. And, and my response is very simple. Uh, I'm an alpha male and I don't want to fuck with something that can't defend itself. So, uh, you know, and, and, and as alphas, I think we're supposed to stand up for what's right in society and protect the, protect the weak and protect the vulnerable. And animals sit right up there at the top of that list. And, uh, you know, I mean, ultimately, if something can't defend itself, you know, I want to be there to try and defend it, not not exploit it when it's uh, when it's not looking, uh, or just going about its daily business of 
being an animal. Uh, so poaching is, um, you know, particularly when you look at, uh, I mean, the main main uh, target uh, markets for, well, let's let's talk about um, rhino horn and, and elephant ivory. Uh, it would is is the Far East. Uh, you got a rising. Um, uh, upper middle class that can now afford to have uh, not only rising in, in, in volume but rising in, in population numbers uh, in those countries that can now afford to have something that was uh, previously reserved for the, the uber elite and uh, you know people want to get their hands on this and there, I mean there is a lot of campaigns that are going on by organizations that specialize as much in marketing as what we specialize in in ground uh, management of, of field-based operations uh, organizations like Wild Aid uh, working particularly in you know, Vietnam and China, um, but uh, you know there, there's uh, you know with the with the rise in price of rhino horn you know, selling for up to seventy five thousand US dollars a kilogram, and a rhino can you know with both set, with a, a set of set of horns can have anything up to 20, 20 kilograms or, or more uh, of horn there. So you've got an animal that that essentially should be locked in a safe, running around an area the size of a small country. Uh, and the job of a ranger is to try and protect those animals. And uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, poachers need to be right once. Rangers need to be right 100% of the time, otherwise that animal is dead. Um, um, uh, elephant ivory, uh, you know, elephants exist in still in, in quite large numbers in comparison to, to rhino. And while the tusk is is worth much less than the horn, it's like if you're going to break into a safe, what do you grab? Do you grab the diamonds or the gold? You know, the horn is like the diamonds, the, the tusk is like the gold, you know. Well, it's easier to get away with, with a couple of horns and, and make a lot more money than it is to try and shift a whole stockpile of ivory. But there's people out there willing to do it, uh, and there's a market for it. Uh, and while that market has become a little uh, fragmented during COVID and, and a lack of um, or a reduction in international travel, uh, it still exists, and we uh, are still dealing uh, very much so with um, a, a, an upturn in in. Uh, ivory-related uh, arrests. Uh, we're not seeing more elephants being poached at the moment. We're just seeing more ivory coming into the system. So that's ivory that's coming out of stockpiles. So that 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 is something that uh, has only been increasing um, over the last decade uh, to 12 years since I've been involved with uh, with um, with conservation. Um, elephants uh, yeah, up to 35,000 a year killed for their for their ivory. Um, and then rhinos, you know, you're seeing, a, you saw, a, you know, the rhino wars that have been raging since pretty much 2009, 2010, uh, that we were heavily involved with there for, for a number of years along the, the border of Kruger National Park, uh, which was home to, at, at one stage, up to a third of the world's remaining rhinoceros. Uh, so there's, there's a market and, and you've got to look at, you've got to look at these, the, these, the body parts of these animals as, uh, as a commodity within organized crime. Uh, uh, they're, they're, they're like uh, drugs, guns, uh, human trafficking, um, uh, the illegal trafficking, trafficking of wildlife is the fourth, fourth largest uh, criminal industry in the world. Uh, and it's just another commodity uh, for these syndicates. Uh, so to think about it like that, and if the, if, if the, uh, the value of these uh, items dropped, uh, they would move on to something else. And traffic something else, uh, but uh, I mean, if you look at look at rhino horn, we can say, you know, how can rhino horn mean something uh, in this day and age when we have so much technology to be able to test and and prove that it's made up of keratin, uh, and it's almost identical compounds to, to fingernails. 
yeah, it's easy for us to say that coming from from um, a Western background. Uh, but when you look at uh, you know traditional Chinese or traditional Vietnamese medicine that is a, that has evolved over thousands of years and and rhino horns been used as far back as two thousand years for us to just jump up and say hey guys we run this thing for a lab and and yeah it doesn't work when they've been using it for two thousand years it it just doesn't um, you know particularly on our soapbox um, America being second largest largest consumer of ivory in the world you know we've we've got our own shit and our own culture that we need to sort out. And uh, you know, jumping up and pointing fingers at others is, is not necessarily the answer. Um, education um, is is going to play a, a key role. Um, but they, they, you know, it's just, I mean, you you go from one thing to the other. You know, for, you know, tigers become endangered. Okay, so and tiger bones were used for all sorts of things, and then all of a sudden, okay, well, China then decides, okay, well, if we run out of tiger bones, let's start using lion bones. And so now the lion bone trade is is a huge thing. Yeah. Um, so it's 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 one of those things that it, and and this is this is what gives me so much respect for for the people involved with conservation. It's never a, a war that's going to be fully won. It's always a war that's going to have to be fully fought, and it's not a war that's being fought on behalf of of just animals. It's a war that's being fought on 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 behalf of civilization. Because uh, when nature no longer exists, then then we don't either. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's really that simple. Um, and I think also that is that sentence, you know, if nature doesn't exist, we don't either. That is the exact sentiment that makes this conversation and any conversation about anything that we don't necessarily feel connected to, it connects us, you know? And I think that's, that's the whole point. And I, I guess, you know, I was... I was listening to you on the Ritual podcast, which I loved because I adore him. And um, you, I heard you say that poaching is the result of both poverty and greed. And I felt like that was just a real summary of so many of the problems we've got within sustainability, within modern day society. It really, it could be applied to so many things. Yeah. But here, yeah. just kind of, I mean, like, is it really like out of that whole, you know, amazing conversation you guys had it was the thing that really struck me as just being completely simple and completely true and I guess would you mind kind of extrapolating upon that a little bit in terms of what you meant um and how it maybe applies yeah. humanity in a larger sense yeah I, I mean subsistence poaching is poaching to put food on the table there's 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 nothing we enjoy about uh having to stop people from doing that. But ultimately with 8 billion people on the planet, if we don't draw a line in the sand somewhere and, and say, listen, if we keep taking and taking, then there's going to be nothing left. And then, and then we're next, uh, you know, and it's hard to have that conversation with someone that does live hand to mouth every day. Uh, and the, the other side of that is, uh, is the commercial side of poaching, the greed, you know, people, the, the organized crime syndicates that uh, do often do take advantage of, of poor people uh, living in, in rural Africa to go and carry out their uh, their dirty work, you know. And a lot, I mean, a lot of the times these poachers uh, they do get wealthy, uh, you know. Particularly, in the, you know, when we worked in Mozambique, seeing the the guys uh, you know, cruising around in their brand new vehicles and living in the big houses and that. And you know, I mean, as a young kid, seeing seeing these 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 guys in their twenties doing that, yeah, who, who doesn't want to get out of the get out of the mud hut and go and, and try and live that life? Um, but you know, it's, and like us as an organization, we, 
we really shifted 180 degrees. You know, when I came over, it was like, okay, where's the bad guys? They're out there. Let's go out, hunt them, arrest them, and get them in jail. And, and that was it, you know, and we did that very successfully for a number of years and, and drove downturns in poaching in all the areas we worked in. Uh, you know, huge amounts of arrests, upturn in wildlife, but essentially we were, we were spending uh, a hell of a lot of money to have a sustained war with, with local uh, populations. Uh, you know, in Africa, the, the human population division of the United Nations says there's going to be 2 billion people on this continent by 2040. And at a certain point, uh, it was, uh, but I, I knew it for a long time. I knew what we were doing was not the answer. And I used to start my talks with saying, we are, we are not the solution. Think of us as like a paramedic trying to get this thing to the operating table. So someone with a better solution can come in and, uh, and, and, and try and do something different than, than putting up bigger fences and, and buying more guns and, and just trying to keep people out that way. Uh, and uh, it wasn't until 2017 that we, we essentially shifted. We didn't only shifted um, what we do 180 degrees. We shifted um, to something that had never been done before uh, in conservation. Uh, uh, but, you know, the 180 degree shift was instead of coming at it from within the nature area, looking outwards into the communities, like defending a castle, it, it went from the communities looking back into the nature area and how do we get the communities to a point where they genuinely... Uh, are motivated by conservation and they want to look after the areas because there's only going to be more and more people on this continent and the answer is, is not bigger fences and more guns. The answer is the people that, uh, that live alongside these areas and, and have lived alongside these areas for tens of thousands of years. Yeah, exactly. I mean, 100%. And I think, so let's, let's get into the Anti-Poaching Foundation a little bit. Um, so you set it up, you are, you know, you put everything into it. You know, I read that you, you sold your houses, you, you put your own money where your mouth was and you really dove into this and it's been going for quite a while now. And so in terms of what you think has been like the most successful and in terms of, you know, hopefully moving closer to the operating table, if not 100% on it, you know, how, like, what would you consider the most successful things you guys have done in terms of really moving the needle forward on addressing the wider issues here? I, I'd say some of the most important things we've done, not the most successful, the most important things we, we, we did was we made mistakes. Uh, we went out and we replicated things that were already happening in the industry, things that were working, things that uh, even though they were working, they, we, we knew they weren't the long-term solution. Um, it was a combination of, of repeating mistakes that were being made in conservation combined with the mistakes that we made in Iraq that, that really uh, used to keep me awake at night, at night. Uh, you know, genuinely keep me awake at night, just trying to think, yeah, there's got to be a different way of doing things. And, and you know, we, we, in our project along the Kruger border there in Mozambique, we got a lot of kudos for, you know, we actually helped drive it, uh, a downturn in rhino poaching in Kruger National Park and you know, playing a role in that helped drive a, what was an international downturn uh, in rhino poaching for the first time in almost a decade. And, um, you know, even, but even with the kudos we got for the work we did there, uh, it, it didn't sit well with me. And, um, you know, this was at a time when we're seeing, um, 
different industries getting ahead by getting more women into into management positions, more women on the boards, more women as CEOs, uh, which didn't. You know, it, it, it was it was a, a weird concept for me, having come from special operations, having come from being a navy diver, having come from the units I worked with in Iraq, and having never worked with a woman before uh, in an operational sense. So, uh, you know, so we started looking around at other other organisations that were deploying women in conservation, and we saw that um, though it was sort of window dressing. Uh, or, or, or what we know as tokenism, you know, put a uniform on a woman, put a gun in her hand, get some pictures, raise some bucks, and uh, or paint the picture that that a woman is doing, or that women are doing, uh, you know, all this work. When in actual fact, behind the scenes, it's it's not what's actually going on. You know, it's it's more of a more of a media spin. Uh, and then I did you know, I did some more reading, and um, we we saw the US military in Iraq using all female counterinsurgency teams uh, to go in and negotiate with, with traditional elders, uh, traditional leaders, uh, just because all the trust had been, been blown out of the water with, with the men, you know, as you, know, you can only kick so many doors, doors in and, and blow up so many houses before, um, before the trust runs out. You know, and so, uh, you know, I saw that and then I saw an article about the US army Rangers putting women through, uh, through their training and preparation for, for frontline deployment, I thought, well, if the U.S. military is doing this now, then it's uh, you know maybe it's something we, we should look at a little a little closer. Uh, interestingly, a, a decade before reading that article in the New York Times about the the U.S. Army Rangers going through um, or putting women through training, we we'd been um, our convoy had been blown up in uh, northern Baghdad, and um, you know we'd, we'd been surrounded, and you know things were not the day was going to shit, to be honest. Uh, and uh, we were we were rescued by U.S. Army Rangers. So uh, yeah, a decade later, reading that article, I thought to you, if the, if the, the unit that was uh, gracious enough to get us out of the shit that day is putting women through through training, then maybe we should look at women being um, wildlife rangers as well, and not and not just not just army rangers, uh, and and proper ones, not ones that are stuck stuck on a desk or stuck on a gate, or, or given a uniform for uh, for for picture time. Um, and then we, we set out to try and, um, well, we, not to try, but we set out to, to trial the, uh, what would become the, the, the world's first uh, fully armed um, all-female anti-poaching unit. Uh, and that was in Zimbabwe uh, in August 2017. Um, so we started with 16 women um, uh, on one reserve, uh, a former trophy hunting reserve. And I can get into the trophy hunting component of it later you know trophy trophy hunting being a declining industry there's a lot of land left over that needs to be saved uh but um you know the project is now scaled uh, we've got a, a, around 240 staff uh about 140 of those are, are women in operational roles uh so all our ranger uh and scout roles uh, are women uh, a number of our instructors are women a number of our management are women uh we're spending a lot of time in training uh, training uh, the women in management skills and capacity building so we can have more women uh, in management but they've never had access to the experience needed uh, to be able to, to, to move up uh, in their positions uh, within uh, conservation and law enforcement uh, industries um, in Africa uh, because it's a, it's a very patriarchal um, space to play in. 
uh, not only uh, from a from a cultural and societal level, but from an industry level as well. Uh, women are outnumbered on the front lines in conservation at an average of around 100 to one. Uh, so without without access to that experience, there's there's really no way that women can genuinely rise up and fulfil a management position in a, in a role that that requires experience when things go to shit and you've got to, you, all you've got to fall back on is your ex experience to get people out of life. Uh, and so, yeah, that's, um, you know, it was, uh, we went in very, very sort of dubiously and, uh, you know, we had to do a lot of negotiations with the local uh, traditional leaders. Um, local government uh, approved the program. Um, halfway through day one, we, you know, We'd convinced everyone, or the women had convinced everyone, uh, that they had uh, more than what it takes to uh, to be doing this job. I mean, as as a woman and a CEO, I I can't tell you how happy it makes me to hear things like this. And you know, again, going back to my my education, I remember you know being in a class about microfinancing, and it was like you know if you give men microfinancing loans they tend to blow it all very quickly if you give it to women they disseminate it throughout their communities they build schools they put their kids in you know good places they bring food you know and they share and i think that it's just so important and this work cannot be it can't be like you know overstated in terms of its importance to empower and educate women to be a part of the solution, especially in these kind of like developing countries or these like areas where maybe they wouldn't have been given these sort of opportunities traditionally. Yeah, you know, it's uh, you know, and I, I do keep saying we're not we're not we're not necessarily a women's empowerment organisation. We're a conservation organisation. We just found a better way to to do business, and there's there's an overwhelming body of evidence that tells us empowering women is the single greatest. Uh, um, positive force for change in the world today. And uh, I mean, if you look at this, it, I mean, if you just look at it from an economic standpoint, so traditionally we would in, employ men from around the country. We would bring them in from hundreds of kilometers away. And the reason we would do that is to avoid collusion with communities they may have grown up within uh, or that have members of family within there that they would give information out. Zimbabwe sits around 160 out of 180 countries on the global corruption index. So if, if Denmark is number one, uh, Zimbabwe is 160. So, you know, right down there. So corruption is a, is a big problem. <clears throat> if you can remove corruption from, from anything you're doing in, in, in Zimbabwe, you're already halfway home to achieving what it is you're trying to do. And, and you know, one of our uh, methods to try and avoid corruption was to employ men from, from far afield. Now the largest line items in our uh, budgets uh, are salaries. Okay, so we, it was so employing men from around the country was dispersing the largest line item in our budget to communities hundreds of kilometres away. Uh, as we scale, uh, as we have scaled this program, we we haven't had a single incidence of corruption with the women, uh, which is quite extraordinary. So it means we we and ninety five percent of our staff. Come, come from within 20 kilometers of the boundary of the area that we're protecting. So it turns the largest line item in our, in our budget into a direct community investment. And it's a community investment that's not going in at council level or government level. Uh, it's, a, it's an investment that's going in at, at household level into the hands of women uh, who spend 80 to 90% of their salary on family and local community versus a, a male that would otherwise spend 30 to 40%. Uh, you know, the, the women, they do spend their money on crazy things, you know, like, like school uniforms and medical and food and, and buying 
land and building houses and stuff like that instead of important stuff like beer and and they're having a good time but uh you know that's you know what they do with their money is up to them but uh you know most of our women that have been been with us for um for for, for more than a year uh have bought their own uh land and built their own built their own houses uh and for a lot of those women that meant getting their <clears throat> getting their families back together being able to get their children back together back together or back back home um you know, previously that you know, if they're unable to afford to look after them, those children are taken away and given to a to a relative, usually a relative of the father. Um, and in some cases, those um, those children have been um, products of rape. Uh, so that you know, to have your child, you know, to be raped and then to have your child taken away and given to the the parents of the the rapist um, is quite a. Uh, yeah, I, I would struggle to think of something more tra- traumatizing, but. Um, you know, we have women uh, that work for us that have, have, you know, used this opportunity and that's all that they got is an opportunity. They, they definitely got no concessions. Uh, they've worked their asses off to be where they are. Uh, but they've, you know, to see the, the way that they've turned their lives around uh, with this program, yeah, it does. It makes, it makes us proud. Yeah. I mean, it's phenomenal and um, really heartening to hear. Um, and I could obviously talk to you about this subject all day long, um, but I will ask you to just go back because I made a note and I did want to revisit it about the the wonderful news that uh, trophy hunting is on the decline, but as you mentioned, is leaving sort of like swaths of land that now need a better purpose. So do you just want to speak to that really quickly? Because I think, you know, as we're moving into what I hope is a different world as, as you know, like our generation and, and our kids and all these things are going to hopefully grow up to, to think about things a little bit differently. You know, how do we start making the right decisions now? How do we start reallocating things that were used badly to be used well, you know, and using this as an example, like, what would you say to that? Yeah. So it's, uh, I mean, Trophy hunting is something that has been used as an economic model uh, for for many land areas across Africa for for more than a century in some cases. Uh, and to use Zimbabwe as an example, almost twenty percent of the land mass is held under what's called communal land trust. So it's it's wilderness areas that belongs to the community. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so, I mean, trophy hunting is dying a natural death. There's, there's reduced wildlife populations, um, so there's less product to sell. Uh, there's a shifting regulations around the export of certain trophies, for example, ivory from Zimbabwe to America. Uh, the U.S. used to make up 52% of the clientele uh, of ivory hunters uh, in, uh, in Zimbabwe. Uh, the, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service banned the importation of Zimbabwean ivory, so that cut out more than 50% of the market. Um, so there's another blow, uh, and that's happening in more than more than one country uh, in Africa, um, and not just with with elephant ivory, with, with many other different species as well. Uh, and then you've you've got a younger generation raised on social media that just doesn't want to fly across the world uh, anymore and, and shoot something so they can take it home and hang it above the fire. You know, people are happy to come and take pictures. Uh, you know, and I think we just we we're, we're in a different we're in a different era now. People. Uh, yeah, and you know that, that I think the stats, you know, for 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 for, uh, for Gen X is coming through. You know, seventy percent of them want to work for companies that do good or give back. 
and uh, you know, it just it just shows you that we you know we we are slowly uh, evolving, or even maybe rapidly evolving as a as a as a species. And and hunting is is one of the casualties casualties of that. And so with that comes uh, all this land that has previously been set aside, and um, you know would otherwise be lost to agricultural uh, uses, human settlement, uh, illegal mining, wood chopping. Uh, and, and I go back to that that. That, that that ratio before that I spoke of uh, with E.O. Wilson's book, Half Earth, you know, we can't afford to be losing more and more bits of nature. So as an organization, we wanted to look at hunting, not as an argument to be had, but as an equation to be solved. And uh, so, I mean, with the current, um, the current, or the, with the pilot area, uh, so we now have eight former trophy hunting areas that we've bought back. Uh, from hunting companies and we actually own a hunting company we're not doing any hunting uh, but we we own the hunting company and the leases that 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 company had but the pilot area that we had we started akashinga in uh, we were able to measure the amount of money going into the local community um, 62 cents from every operational dollar that we spend is going back into the community uh, obviously we can't buy things like engine parts and petrol and stuff um, 80 percent of that 62 percent is going back in at household level into the hands of women uh, we can show on paper to the community that we're putting the same amount uh, into that community every 34 days is what trophy hunting was doing per annum before it failed. So we have a viable economic alternative to trophy hunting, which for us is only working with women at the center of the strategy. Uh, and that's essentially what we do. We put women at the center of the, of the conservation strategy. It gives us the greatest traction in community development and conservation became the byproduct um, of that of that approach. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we, at the moment, I mean, we're in the, in the process of negotiating, uh, I won't say exactly where, uh, but uh, transition into uh, coastal and maritime conservation, but uh, it's a, a terrestrial area that leads into, into the ocean with about 70 kilometers of ocean frontage uh, into some of the most biodiverse waters on the planet. Uh, and that area is a, is a million acres of, of uh, trophy hunting area, um, which we'll be expanding the Akashinga model into. So yeah, it's it's um, and this is this is a is a is a much larger narrative that people are not talking about. Uh, people like to talk about the sexier areas, the national parks, and you know, we can go into any national park, and there's going to be at least a dozen different NGOs fighting to do this or do that. Traditionally, hunters have not been able to attract not-for-profit partners, uh, and so when hunting fails and they move out, the area is left blank. Uh, and so that's what we've been doing is moving in and and. And I mean, for me, as as a conservationist or an environmentalist, I don't want to, I don't want to fight for something that's already been fought for. I want to fight for the lost causes, and that's what these hunting areas are—they're lost causes. And um, you know, when you come into an area and everything's been shot out, and and over time you can uh, you can see the animals come back in, and you can see the birds come back in, and and the trees start growing again. You know, that's. That for me is 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 an achievement. Uh, turning nothing into something is is an achievement. Yeah, I mean, yes, absolutely. And I think you know, it's it's an, a, it's just a really inspirational thing to hear you say, Damien. And I think you do a very good job of of just presenting the facts and and why it's a good idea and why we should all be working towards 
these sort of, you know, of course, not all of us are going to move to Africa and become conservationists, but I think there's an argument that all of us could be doing more with our abilities, especially, you know, the Revon Vert audience pointing to you guys, you know, I think all of us probably have a certain amount of education, opportunity, disposable income, um, to really think about choices and what we help and what we contribute to. And, and that being said, I really want to touch upon, you know, it's kind of like the final element here. And we've sort of already touched upon it, Damien, but, but this idea of going plant-based, um, because I think that's something that literally everybody listening to this can, they can do tomorrow. They could do today. You know, this is, this is something that's so doable. Um, but again, you know, I, I was talking to my husband before our conversation and I was like, you know, is there anything you'd want to, you'd want to know? And, and his question was on this point and he was like, you know, he's been listening to all of the things that you've been saying in the background as I've had them on in the flat. And he was like, this guy has been able to experience things firsthand that 95% of us will never experience. And that will have created a certain amount of empathy and a certain amount of awareness that you know, whilst you might not have stepped foot in a factory farm, you've seen animal suffering, you've dedicated your life to animal suffering. And us in the middle of London, you know, our friends, our family, they're all very, very good people. But when it comes to what they put on their plate, there just is not that awareness. There is not that empathy. There is not that real life experience that that makes you do this. And I'm, I'm, I'm a vegetarian anyway. My husband is very nearly there. But like, it's taken years to sort of cultivate this awareness just out of our own education and reaching out to, to gather this information. So what's your best advice for talking to people that just don't put it together? You know, they don't connect the dots with deforestation, animal suffering, climate change, and, and what they're putting on their plates possibly three times a day. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the Guardian, the Guardian put an article out last week and just said that, you know, the most important thing we can all do as individuals uh, in terms of climate change and, and looking after nature is, is to stop eating meat. Um, but people like the taste of it, you know, and unfortunately our conveniences outweigh our conscience uh, uh, in, in a way that we're able to build fantastically bullshit excuses to keep doing. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a trait of, of the human being. Uh, to be able to build uh, excuses around things that make us feel good about the way we do things when we know that things we're doing are not right. Uh, and we will continue to be that uh, overall as a species. Um, it's how we behave as individuals that I suppose are, are what define us. And, um, you know, ultimately, um, you know, I can't speak for everyone. I can only speak for myself. Uh, you know, I, I, you know I, 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 only, I only answer to one person and that person's me and I can't bullshit myself. And, uh, you know, if, if other people out there can bullshit themselves and carry on with it, then that's that's fine. That's up to them. But uh, you know, ultimately, I didn't want to have I didn't want my my choices to have victims. Uh, you know, I got involved with conservation. Uh, you know, because I wanted to make a difference, and then you know, I fell in love. With I fell in love with animals, and natural world is is the meat industry. Uh, in terms of uh, land and forest that's cleared uh, to uh, to put livestock on, and then and more than more than seventy percent of the, the world's grain that's grown to feed that livestock uh, in a conversion that is 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 crazy. It's like me giving you 
uh, $17 and you're giving me $1 back, you know, in terms of, of, of protein exchange from grain to, to, to meat. <clears throat> Obviously that varies from, from animal to animal. Uh, you know, and then, and then on the suffering side, uh, you know, being responsible for an industry that kills over a hundred billion animals a year and a hundred billion. And I mean, you think of that number and it's just a, uh, you know, what did, what did Joseph Stalin say? You know, one, uh, a million deaths is a, is a statistic and a single death is a tragedy. Uh, that's, um, you know, if you look at that, it's, I mean, it's, it's incredible that, that we would be responsible for so much suffering. Uh, and it's not just, it's not just the death, it's the suffering that those animals go through and the, the lives and the conditions that they lead. Uh, and, and ultimately, um, it's not the suffering, it's, it's the patheticism that comes with uh, the way that we pay others to do things to animals that we're not willing to do ourselves. Yeah, I think that's... Um that's kind of it at the core, isn't it? And I, I think to, to speak upon something that's really proactive, I, I, I read that, that within the Anti-Poaching Foundation and um, in all the programs that you're running now, you're encouraging vegan diets, like you, you're getting people on board with this. Like, how has the uptake been for people within the communities and within the organizations? Like, you know, when you're kind of like asking people to explore this, has it, have people gotten on board with it? Like, is it something foreign? Is it something that makes sense when they start doing it? Just like rolling something like that out, you know? Um, so we, we, I mean, we, we train all our staff from an environmental and uh, an ethical uh, and a nutritional standpoint on why we don't feed them meat, um, why everyone is on a plant-based diet. We've got seven vegan chefs uh, working in the middle of the bush, uh, we've got a group of women doing one of the toughest jobs in one of the most remote locations uh, on the planet. Uh, and the is up to them, but that's, that's what we serve. And that's part of the program when people sign up. Uh, interestingly, though, with the information that we give them, uh, they, uh, most of those, those women adopt that back in their household. And we have a program called Back to Black Roots. Um, taking into consideration that much of Africa was raised largely on a plant-based diet uh, I, I, over the over the millennia, uh, with meat being reserved um, often for ceremonial purposes in, in many parts of the, the continent, and um, you know focusing on on indigenous crops and and you know particularly in places where getting medical treatment or medical care is hard, unaffordable, doesn't exist. Uh, prevention is, is the best medicine and a healthy um, whole foods plant-based diet is is you know i mean it's just it's a no-brainer and in places where people die uh people die of diabetes heart attack stroke um uh, obesity related issues uh just because they don't know how to eat properly or they're never taught properly so back to back roots is a, is a four-stage program um, first, it, it starts with our staff, then with their families, then with the communities, and then building ambassadors. And that's, um, you know, that's, uh, that's a way of building food sustainability in a place where it takes, uh, I think, 48 times more water to produce a kilogram of beef than it does to produce a kilogram of vegetables. Yeah, exactly. And, and just, just to, to put it out there, Damien, you have a very physical job. You're very active in what you do. You're vegan. I'm assuming you've never felt 
deficient or unenergized or like you couldn't do what you need to do because there's going to be people listening that are asking that question so i'm just going to ask it for them no i'm, I'm 41 so uh <laughs> I, I, I never had more energy uh you know i spend uh you know the year, my year traveling around um you know work seven days a week um, either in the bush uh, running around with my teams uh, I train you know, six or seven days a week uh, if I'm not doing that I'm flying around the world giving lectures and you know, four or five different cities a week uh, you know I'm, uh, I'm I'm doing just fine thanks all right well that's very good to hear so my final question then and really thank you I, I could genuinely kind of speak to you all day but my final question is just for anybody listening, you know, who might be sat in their homes in, in London or New York or Sydney or LA, which is where a lot of our listeners are. I mean, aside from donating to, to Anti-Poaching Foundation and Akshinga, which I would highly suggest everybody do, you know, what, is there anything else that we can all do to aid this mission, to aid with animal conservation, to start to think about this in our day-to-day -day lives, even though we might not be on the ground with you guys? Yeah, it's just a matter of, of, of reprioritizing how we look at the world out, outwardly. And uh, I mean, just as an example, more money is given to ballet in the United States than for, for conservation, both locally and internationally. Uh, nothing against ballet, but you know, when, you know, we, we've only got one backyard here this place called nature and uh, if we don't look after it we, i mean pardon my french but we're fucked um so you know we just as we go through our, our daily lives we need to look at how we can offset what it is that we're doing uh and not only offset you know doing doing something good doesn't buy us a credit to do something bad uh we all need to do more good than we do bad and, and uh you know read up educate yourselves whether it's on your diet uh, whether it's on how you can be part of uh, uh, benefiting something involved with conservation and organization, whether it's local, whether it's international, uh, you know, whether it's taking your kids out into, into nature and teaching them about it, whether it's just stopping and, and thinking about, you know, the impact that we have as individuals, you know, all these things add up. Uh, we're not all going to change our lives overnight. We're not all going to move to Africa and, and start up, a, you know, a small, uh, you know, quasi uh, military to go out there and fight poachers, uh, you know. But we can all do something, uh, and I think the the biggest mistake we can think is that our, our small individual efforts won't add up to something much bigger, because they do, and it's the only thing that that will uh, affect change on the scale that we need to affect it. Well, thank you. That was perfect. And um, I will link everything um, that we've that you've mentioned, Damien, and also link to all of the channels that people can go to support. But but mostly just thank you so much for the work that you do and for taking the time to um, to talk to us. And um, yeah, and I'm wishing you all the best.